Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is April Stewart, a teacher at Athens Middle School in Athens, Ohio, and we will be discussing ways in which teachers in K-12 systems are starting to adapt instruction to new generations of students. April has extensive experiences as a teacher. She has taught at various grade levels and is currently a math and technology teacher for 7th and 8th grade. She is also actively involved in technology planning for the Athens City Schools April received her bachelor's degree from Missouri Baptist University and her master's from Ohio University. April is also a level one Google certified educator. April, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you. Let's start by just going in a little bit more detail about your background as an educator. Uh, You've been teaching for a while now and in different locations and at different grade levels. Can you kind of just give an overview of that? Sure. I began my teaching career in St. Louis, Missouri. I taught at Ferguson Middle School, and I also substituted around the area in different suburbs of St. Louis in the Hazelwood School District. I then uh, moved to Ohio to the Toledo area and uh, substituted and taught in some uh, more rural areas. And since then, I've moved to Athens, and I teach in Athens City Schools now. I have taught grades from 6th through eighth grade. Um, I've also taught various levels of college classes, technology classes in the classroom, how to use computers in the classroom at various universities and colleges around um, in different areas that we've lived. So so part of your background, then you've, you've encountered a lot of different types of students coming from both urban and also rural backgrounds. You've been teaching for a while now, so you've seen sort of a, de- a development of students. Before we start talking about some of the things that you do as a teacher, have you noticed changes in students from the time that you started teaching until now about how they sort of approach learning and the interests that they bring to the classroom, uh, how they engage in the learning experience? Absolutely. When I first began teaching, um, there was a lot of push to go paperless and to start to introduce into now this was in the 90s so to introduce I didn't want to date you (laughs) I know you didn't (laughs) well I'll date myself so that there was a lot of um, push to start incorporating some technology into the classrooms to move from overheads to using a lot more mostly multimedia types of things um, that we were able to use Um, students were much more still stuck in paper pencil they you know if someone later on a few years into my career had a blackberry or had a spell checker you know it was a fun type of technology that they got to use in the classroom some assistive type technology they were much more still find the dictionary um, do research in a good book. We taught a lot of how to find information that you wanted in the library. We were still very paper pencil. Um, today's learner, the first thing that they do if you ask them a question is, of course, Google it or ask Siri. They're they're very much digital natives. They're completely a part of their device. Their device is part of their life. It's who they are. They can't imagine if they forget their phone or they don't have their tablet, they literally are lost in life. They can't find what they need. It's a part of their being and who they are. And that very much falls into the way that they like to learn and the medium that they learn from. 
So from needing a a giant book, an encyclopedia to find information, having to write a paper, pencil, letter to an expert in research, to today being able to instantly find information that you want online, to instantly be able to email uh, an expert in the field that you are trying to do research on and almost immediately receiving an email back or Skyping with that person or watching a video of that person who's an expert is uh, much more advanced today than, than we had when I first began teaching. And the way that students learn becomes much more different from I have to look this up, I have to memorize this information because if I don't have this book with me, when the teacher asks me the question, I have to have that memorized too. I have my information in my hand on my device. All I have to do is Google it or ask Siri and I have the information that I need. I just need to know how to then apply that information, how to use that information to make good decisions. It becomes a completely different way of teaching and learning when you're not stuck to a book or stuck to a a library where you need to find information, you have to actually get to a library, those types of things. So learning is a lot, becomes a lot different now. Not so much memorizing facts, a lot more being able to synthesize and use the information that you find. It's really fascinating that that as a teacher, we might have to start thinking about how to give Siri participation points in our classes, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, Have you you noticed um, that – because both of us have daughters that are the same age, so – and we know each other because of that. Have, have you noticed that there is almost an apprehension or a, a heightened sense of emotional distress when they're not able to access their iPhone or iPad? I mean, I notice that all the time. Absolutely. It's so much a part of them that it's where they store their friends almost. It's where they have all their pictures. It's where they have their contacts. It's where um, you know they're so digitally native that it's what they use to express themselves. So you and I would have carried a journal or we would have carried, you know, our address book, that, an address book to these students, to the girls and boys who are this age, so digital native, they don't even understand that. They understand contacts, you know, that right. Rolodex, not important to them anymore. It's all in their phone. So their contacts are in their phone. Their pictures are in their phones. Videos of the events they've been a part of, their, what they study is on their phones. You know, my students... Um, take out their camera, their phones, and take pictures of the assignment boards. They have their information for class in there. They want to take pictures of the pages for their books, which actually I think is kind of the first time I had a student do that, I was like, you are a genius. And he looked at me like I was crazy because instead of taking home a 400-page history book or a 400-page math book, he snapped four pictures of the pages and instantly had it with him at all times. So their lives are so on their tablets and so much on their phones and they live almost in a digital world so much that it does become extremely stressful. And I think as educators, we need to embrace that and use those Mm -hmm. devices and use how much a part of their life, their technology has become that they are so invested in a kind of digital world that that only works to our benefit. That right. if we use that as a plus, instead of saying, put your phones away, put your tablets away, you can't use this, you have to do that, that when we use it to benefit and to interest students, that it becomes such um, so much more relevant to them because they understand what they're doing on their phones. They, that's interesting to them. They find value in that. 
and then learning also takes place there. And so, and they do use it as a study device also. Yeah, so. totally. I mean, I, I definitely see that uh, in the way, even, even when they do homework and they're, you know, trying to figure out, you know, ways to work their way through problems. I mean, that discussion doesn't happen via voice as often as it happens via text message or or um, Snapchat or something exactly. like that. Exactly. With so. each other as they collaborate. And then also, if nobody in their group that they're collaborating with can figure it out, then they their automatic response after that is to go to the internet, to go to YouTube, to go to a place um, on the internet that they know they'll be an expert, to find a YouTube channel on it, and they find the information that they need using that. And then whoever finds it first shares it back <laughs> yeah. on their device with everybody else. Oh, this is how how you work this problem. I just watched a video on it. Or, you know, I just watched the Khan Academy tutorial on how to do this circumference. And so here's how you do it. So it becomes a real part of their life, real collaboration, real interest, real um, a, a real place for them to be, a real classroom, a virtual mm -hmm. classroom that they actually can use. Yeah, that's actually a really good segue to talking about some of the techniques that uh, that you and I talked about in preparation for the interview. So one of the points that you made is is a shift from giving information to facilitating learning. What do you mean by that? In today's learners need base knowledge. They do. They need to know the steps to solving a problem. They need to know math facts. They need to know basic history information. But as a teacher, I don't have to kill and drill so much anymore. They don't lo lose the chance to know information if they don't have it in their brains. So like I said before, my students today, today's learners, are so digitally native that they don't remember life without a cell phone. They don't remember life before you could just go online and find out information. So if I ask them a question, just a simple question like, what's the weather like going to be today? They automatically pick up a device and look for it, and they have the answer very quickly. The same thing is true when I say, what's the formula to find the circumference of a circle? They look it up on their phone, on their device, on their smart device of some sort. It's so ingrained in them that they absolutely focus on that before they think about looking at a book. And so in the past, we needed to teach how to find information in an encyclopedia, how to find it in a library, memorizing those dates and facts, where now we can focus more on the process of learning. How do you problem solve through this? You found some information, work with that information. Does that actually make sense? Does that really give you the information that you wanted? Do those steps, as you work those out, what are other problems that you find? So problem-based learning, discussions, figuring out a lot of problem-solving happens in that facilitating learning. A lot of times as a teacher, my job now isn't just to disseminate information and to tell them facts and information. It's to guide them in their learning, to ask some guiding questions as they are working at a table of other students, all, of course, on their device, not talking out loud to each other, but using some format to uh, communicate back and forth instead of me saying, all right, here's the fact, here's the fact, here's the fact, memorize that for your test. Instead, it is, okay, let's look up what information we can find about this and ask a lot of guiding questions to get students to the point that you want them to be at, to learn the process, to learn the information. But they've done it themselves and they've found the information on their own. They've used collaboration. They've used problem solving, all really good 21st century job skills that they're going to use for the rest of their lives. But I didn't just spit out information at them. Instead, I was able to lead them through a process 
they used their technology, they used their device, they collaborated with each other, and they were able to find that information. So yes, they still need to have base knowledge. They still have to be able to recall information in order to work math problems. Certainly, they still have to know history, to learn about successes, to learn about the mistakes that we've made, to be able to not allow the negative effects of history to happen again or to repeat itself. But the way that today's students learn and process and apply the knowledge um, is a very different way than just memorizing facts and information. They don't really have to know the date. They don't have to know the time because they can find it in an instant. And actually, you know this is true because you've done it with your own students and children. A lot of times, students can find information on their phone faster than adults can recall the information mm -hmm. that they memorize. So a lot of times, you might not remember everything you learned in U.S. history, or it takes a second for you to be like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that and come up with the information when our students today can almost instantly have it as fast as they can speak it into their phone. They can find the information or the answers. And so teaching takes on a different kind of um, art form or craft than just disseminating information. It becomes guiding and leading and sometimes allowing students to struggle through on their own while you watch, which is hard for teachers to do, but while you watch the process unfold because they need to be able to problem solve on their own. They need to be able to figure out what is accurate information, and they need to figure out how to share that with each other, which is difficult for teachers to do because we're natural helpers, and we like to jump in and say, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. <laughs> Come back. Go over here to this. And so sometimes teaching with technology in the classroom or allowing students to use the technology that they have becomes a little bit more difficult. There's a lot less control um, from the teacher's point of view because you have to let them come about the process and figure out the information on their own. You lead them to where you want them to be, but it's not just me saying, this is the formula. This is how you work the problem. Here mm -hmm. are the five steps. It's more of a problem-solving um, type of information or type of session or setting. It, it, as you describe it, it sounds like to me, and, and I would agree with this, that the, the role of the teacher has become a lot more complex in the sense that we're no longer, as you said, just trying to give information away, but we're really trying to teach a process of how you bring together baseline knowledge that you have with the ability to access information and then the ability to then bring that into a learning community, whether it's a few other students or even an entire class, um, and, and use that information to do something. I mean, that's just a, it's a more complex teaching environment, but I think for the better. Right. And so my ultimate goal as a teacher is to create a positive, successful citizen of the world in mm -hmm. the future. And so doing that and doing those steps that you just talked about, it allows for that to happen a lot more quickly, I think, than waiting till you get to college and you go right. into an area that you specifically want to study or waiting until you're in high school civics class and then you have a discussion about it. And so because we live so digitally in the world today, being able to put that process together brings about some very young students who are super successful in the things that they do and who are going out and using technology for the good and using mm -hmm. the devices that they have or the, the collaboration that they have to work together to help each other. You know, um, students come up with some ideas and things we do. We kind of stole the Google Genius Hour idea and, and let them collaborate on some things that they're just really interested in doing. 
And they came up with and come up with some really great ideas, things that range from how to help the local food bank to things that have to do with how to, you know, save the whales and how to come up with ideas to help endangered species. And when you and I did that, when we were in school, we had great ideas. But unless that was put into the newspaper or it was mailed out in posters, it wasn't advertised like it is today. So my students today can make a piece um, of information, make a video, can make a, a Snapchat, can make a photo and put it on Instagram that can reach millions of people in an instant when you and I might have done great work on poster board, (laughs) (laughs) but it didn't get anywhere necessarily Mm -hmm. other than our cafeteria at school. And so these students really are able to um, take some ideas that they have and globally share those. And as a teacher, sometimes that gets crazy scary because you don't want them to be too global, (laughs) you know, (laughs) when they're too young. But also you want them to see the potential that they have as real citizens because they might be 14 years old or 13 years old, but they still have the opportunity and the um, ability to be change makers mm-hmm. in their world. So. That phrase, you can change the world, used to be something that was just a phrase for us. But I mean, literally, our, our kids can, if they want to, have an impact that's far beyond their local community. Exactly. Um, just really briefly, what is the uh, Google Genius Hour and how do you use it in your classroom? Um Google Genius Hour was uh, something that Google created in their actual work environment. And I'm sure I'm going to get some of this wrong, but the gist of it is they allowed for about an hour, I think a week at first, for people to, their employees to brainstorm things that they loved, they had passion about, that they were interested in. And a lot of really cool things came out of that, not just technology-wise, but um kind of culture-wise and um, and world-wise, being able to change some things with um, the environment, different things like that. So we have something called academic advisory in my um, school right now, which is at the end of the day. It's kind of like the old homeroom, except mm-hmm. it's not in the morning. It's at the end of the day. And so my homeroom has uh, – we have Chromebooks in our classroom, so they are allowed to spend some time on Fridays just because that's the day normally there's not a ton of – homework that needs to be done, those types of things. Um, Not a lot of tutoring that has to take place because you're about to head into the weekend. And they can focus on, they can group up together, they can focus on things that they're interested in. Some people are really interested in things that, um, you know, where we live in our community. There's um, a lot of things that are happening for students and for people with special needs and a lot of activities with that. A lot of, of my students were trying to come up with, um, and I think this is a creative one, ways to allow the college and the community to better interact with each other. Um, because sometimes they really miss when the college students are gone for the summer and it seems like our town is half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other times, you know, there's problems with so many people being in one space and how does the community share with the college. And so I thought that was a pretty good one. I'm sure a professor's child came up with that one probably <laughs> because they were, were very aware of those well, types and, of things. And notably, um, <laughs> Athens Middle School is, is on High Street, which is where one of the uh, right. fests uh, occurs. Exactly. Athens, so so yeah. it brings up, you know, it brings to their mind when they see the the litter, when they see the um, the horses, that because our building is used as the police headquarters. And so they see that there has to be some policing of that and there has to be cleanup of that. And there has to be, you know, like one year it was, one time it was, what do you do with the horses, the police 
uh, horses in the middle of the city. Like, where do you, you know, they just have questions. What do mm-hmm. you do with feeding them and cleaning up after them? And there's not a barn. And so they try to problem solve some pretty creative things that have to do with stuff like that. So <laughs> it's fascinating. It I mean, is pretty yeah. fascinating where the junior hire's mind goes. Just, just <laughs> let them go. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you talked about uh, when we were talking about the, your approaches to facilitating learning as an emphasis for teaching is the necessity of being able to understand how to assess information uh, because they are accessing information ubiquitously. I mean, mm-hmm. every every you know every few minutes they're accessing their device for something, and so they have so much more information at their fingertips. Um, it is different than the textbooks that you and I grew up with. And so how as an educator do you talk with students about, okay, when you're looking at this video on YouTube, you know, what are the things that you look for to make sure that it's good information? Right. We, we say often, remember, just because it's on the Internet does not mean it's true <laughs> or factual. And so there is a time where if you're a period of time in class where if you're going to allow your students to use devices and technology and the internet that you do have to spend time on learning and teaching those students how to find good information, looking for most students, if you don't point it out to them, don't realize that web pages have dates and authors. And when was the last time that it was updated is one of the most important things we look at, because if it's six years old, it's probably bad data. It's old data. Who was the author? If it's something that has to do with um, a chemical reaction and it's a company that produces something that has nothing to do with that, it's probably not good information. So they research the authors. They look to see if the information um, seems to be accurate across multiple different um, pieces of information. They look at the date, like I said. They also look at things like, is it a wiki or is it a blog? And if it is, is it one that is open to the public for um, posting on information? Or is it one that's a closed one? Is it one is it a, a wiki that's a monitored wiki where there's people who police what's put on there and make sure that they do research it and find information? Um, and a lot of times they'll still need to match it up if they can't find really good information to figure out if it's true or not or accurate. They do still go back and look at a textbook or they do look at an encyclopedia, usually an online encyclopedia. But, you know, mm-hmm. they'll find the Encyclopedia Britannica and match up information against it. Um, so there are a lot of different skills that they have to use. Also, if it's a person doing the video, then they look at who sponsors that video. So if it's a video on chemistry and a major university is the sponsor of it, then they're pretty. Sh- you can be pretty sure that it's an accurate amount of information. The video tells the truth about what it's trying to explain, gives you real steps. If it's from Stanford or Harvard or Yale, or if it's a video from a com- if it's a Microsoft sponsored. Um, video about using a Microsoft product. So they look at the authors, they look at the dates, they look at other information that they can find, whether it's a wiki, whether it's a blog, who's who has contributed to the information. Um, and they, they're pretty good about being able to figure out kind of iffy information, stuff that's very opinionated, and whether it's an accurate just here are the facts, here's the information type of article um, or information on the internet. That's that's so important, and it's something that I mean I, I remember, and I'll bet you do too. When teachers 
first started to say, okay, you can't use the web for anything uh, because it's bad information, to then saying, okay, well, you can use the web as long as you're only using the library website. Right. <laughs> you know? And then now, you know, it's really opened up and it's really a focus on, okay, there is a there is a bunch of information out there. Some of it's good, some of it's mediocre, and some of it's really bad. And the real skill that we have to have now is to understand those differences and and to be able to critique the information that we're, we're trying to use, even though we're learning from it at the same time. I exactly. think that's a really important. Uh, April, we were talking before the break about how students um, access information, critically evaluate it. Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about some of the things that you're actually doing in your classroom. I know from um, the experiences that I've had with you um, as a teacher of my daughter that you're an active user of technology in the classroom. What are some of the things that you use in your classroom on a daily basis? We um, have the ability, thankfully, to have Chromebook carts in our classroom. And, of course, most of my students have phones, so they're able to use their smartphones in the classroom. Also have the availability of Chromebooks. We have um, smart boards in our classrooms that we're able to use. We use... um, several different types of platforms while we're in. We, of course, Google a lot of information. We use a lot of videos. Um, We use some tutorials. We have digital textbooks in the subjects that I teach, and so it's nice for the students to have the ability to go out and look at those textbooks online, at home. Um, And like I said earlier, we do everything from taking pictures with our phones to take home with us of our, our textbook pages so we don't have to carry the whole thing home our um, assignment books. And so we use a lot of different technology devices. And of course, I I also teach math. So we still use a calculator. We still (laughs) use, you know, now a lot of people choose to use their calculators on their cell phones, on their Mm -hmm. smartphones. um, And there's some really nice um, scientific calculators that are available. And so I'm never afraid. I, I often walk around and see some really nice you know, nicely designed platforms of different um, scientific calculators. I'm like, hey, where did did you get that download? And so (laughs) we kind of keep a log of different apps that we can use for different um, uh, things in in the class, for different um, types of problem solving that we might have, or a, a list of apps that are helpful, like even as small as being able to handwrite notes on their devices and then turn them into text or just to be able to handwrite something in. So they do a good job of collaborating. They teach me a lot. I don't have to do a lot of app shop app shopping because they do it for me and they mm-hmm. know what's the best. So we often share things like that. So we do a lot of different um, educational things in the classroom with technology. So a lot of times my assignments will include things like create a video, make a newscast. Um, And, you know, when they're using those types of things, technology is such a familiar platform for these students, for our digital native kids. You know, they don't remember life without it, and they're so invested in it that it allows for them to be super creative. It allows for them to have um, kind of be in a, a really familiar area of their life because they use the technology already to talk with their friends. They use it to take pictures of their life, to document historical events that they have, to make videos, those types of things. And so taking those things and putting them in the classroom and allowing them to use that medium that they're kind of familiar with, that they enjoy, that they um, are able to use daily, and using that as an educational tool becomes a really easy way for motivation and for interest in learning. Um, If, you know, 
And it also teaches a ton of the curriculum that I'm supposed to teach or that we're required to teach as teachers. So when they're using this technology and the platform and the mediums that are easy for them to use, that they use for fun things in Mm -hmm. life, they use for their own entertainment, they watch videos on there, they, you know, blog, they watch other people's YouTube videos, they watch Netflix, all of those types of things. And then they take that same type of thing that they're creating videos they're sending to their friends and they use them as informational pieces that they create and then they send to their friends so they can all study together. It's a win-win for for my classroom, for my teaching. And so, you know, we do we watch CNN student news and we watch other different types of student news in, um, in some of our classrooms. And when we do that, they see examples of what it's like to be a reporter, how to find information, how to report on it, making of videos, how to summarize events, what's the important things to tell other people as you're educating people. And so then we do projects based on that. And so, you know, take a historical event and you have to research this event you have to, um, it's usually in a group, decide the different roles that everybody's going to take. Who's the anchor? Who's the lead reporter? Who's going to be out in the field? Who's going to be behind the camera? Who's going to edit it? They have to write scripts. They have to make storyboards. They have to make sure that they've summarized the information correctly. They have to make sure that they give all of the data and reference it. You know, They have to always show their reference in there. And so it covers a ton of things. And then they have to actually present it and show it to their students. And research shows that when you prepare something to teach someone, that you learn so much more than if you just read it in a book or if you're just told it in a lecture. And so it becomes a really powerful teaching device because the students think they're just having a great time making something fun, making a good product at the end, creating memories with their friends. You know, they take it home and show their friends. They put it on their YouTube channel, you know, but they just covered Columbus discovering the Americas and (laughs) Mm -hmm. and several other things that are other indicators and um, common core standards that they're required to know. But they learned those. Plus, they problem solved. They collaborated. They came up with um, roles for each other. And so they learned a lot of of 21st century skills that me giving a lecture on Columbus wasn't (laughs) going to do. You know, it's fascinating hearing you talk about that because I know that you're teaching math and science and maybe some history, but you sound like a communication professor, you know, in the way that you describe the assignments. I mean, you could just as easily be teaching, you know, one of our journalism or communication courses. But I think what that underscores is that learning uh, and and our approach to teaching is becoming inherently more interdisciplinary in the way that we have to enact it. Exactly. So I'm not only teaching my math indicators and my math standards, I'm also teaching a lot of language arts skills. I'm teaching a lot of um, social skills. I'm teaching a lot of library skills. And so as you are working in, you know, if you're teaching a math problem, you still have to storyboard out and script out what you're going to put in it. You Mm -hmm. still have to assign roles. There's tons of collaboration. And so we are departmentalized in the subjects we teach, but technology allows us to be much more um, broad reaching with the skills that we're teaching our students, which comes back to the main point of helping them to become good, positive, successful Mm -hmm. citizens as they go throughout their lives. It gives a lot of really good job skills and future study skills that they need as they continue on in their education and in their life in general. 
April, uh, I want to talk about one last area that that gets a little bit more specific than just general technology. You actually uh, started to do some teaching of coding and scripting in your classes. Can you talk, you know, in in, in broad terms about what you did? Sure. We, um, I became very interested in a lot of the data and statistics that I was reading and seeing about girls in particular and anyone from a lower socioeconomic status um, not participating in math, in science, and especially in computer science classes, and how there was um, kind of a push to get girls involved, girls coding, girls in a lot of science classes and math classes that they didn't seem to be super interested in being a part of. Um, A lot of it had to do with... um, even video games, that a lot of video games didn't pique interest that a lot of female girls were interested in. And so, you know, I love Miss Pac-Man and, you know, <laughs> and Pac-Man and those types of things. And now, once so, again, we've just dated right, ourselves, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there was a lot of, of research coming out about that. And so teaching in, um, in Appalachia, teaching a large amount of females, I was very interested in what we could do to make our students more interested, to give them some real-life skills that they could use in computer science, but also in kind of piquing some interest and giving an introduction into what computer science, what coding really is. You know, a lot of times it used to be when you would say to students, what do you want to do when you grow up? It was, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a marine biologist. But now when you ask people, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's, I want to make video games. I want to be, um, I want to, I want to run something like Facebook. You know, that those are the mm-hmm. types of things that they're saying, but they don't really have any idea of what the baseline of that is. How do you get into that type of career? If you want to make video games, what is it that you actually do? Are you the graphic artist or are you writing the code? Are you, you know, what are the things that you would be doing for that? So I um, came upon one of my coworkers and I came upon um, an activity that was happening across the United States that was free, which is always good in education, (laughs) that we could um, join in that was really high quality stuff that was sponsored by the president, by President Obama, by Bill and Melissa Gates, by the Partovi brothers, by um, a lot of people who were really um, big into technology that was putting out really good technology um, stuff. And so we were like, hey, if they're really on board and it's free, and so let's try it. So we actually, uh, the teacher, other teacher and I went through and did the course and it was really, really good. And it was hard. <laughs> you had to do a lot of problem solving. There was lots of math, you know. And I already had a master's in um, instructional technology. And so for me to, to sit and have to actually think about a lot of it, I was like, hey, this is, this is really great. And it was a good introduction for students to see what coding actually could be and what computer science actually could be for them. So we did. We um, participated in the event, and it went really, really well. So I was able to have all of my students um, in a two-day period participate in this event. And a lot of students came out saying, I did not realize that I could actually do this. You know, we used a kind of Blockly form of coding um, that they had to really think through. They had to problem solve through. They had to go through 20 steps, 20 different programs, Um, and successfully complete them, and then they got a certificate at the end. And what ended up happening was a lot of people became really, a lot of my students became really interested in it, but a lot of them also realized this actually is something I could do, 
Um, it is, I maybe didn't like the writing of the code part of it, but I really liked the characters that were created when I did it. So maybe mm -hmm. I really like graphic design instead of just making the video game. And a lot of people came up with, um, as it developed throughout the years, there's more programs now available for free also from the same company. And we were able to um, complete in this in a studio type of environment with um, all of our students some app writing. So we have middle school students who are using the coding that they have with these different programs to be able to actually make apps that really do things for them. And so they see a lot of success with that, but they also are um, – Ex they get to experience it, and they see that it doesn't matter where I'm from. It doesn't matter if I'm a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if I'm an A-plus student or not because a lot it's like a different language. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people who don't or don't find a lot of interest in some of the classes that are available find a ton of interest and are really drawn to it and find it easy to do the coding. And so it's become an annual thing that we've done. So we've participated for the last three years, um, and then – there's always the option for students after they do the that um, the main event, it's, which is offered during Computer Science Week. Um, they have the opportunity; they can access it at home. They can play the games at home. They can write code at home. And then we also are offering um, a class to students at the middle school, which is a coding class and a pre-engineering class and a computer science class that they have the ability to be able to sign up and take. Also, so it gives real-world experience. I, I had a, a business owner here in town tell me that it was really hard to employ high schoolers because um, this was about six years ago. He said, there's not a ton of technology skills that are coming out of our high school students. And so I can't hire them to work in my place of business because they have to be able to run a computer. They have to be able to um, you know, use these different technology skills, but they, they're really, really smart kids. They just don't have this special skill that they need or this ability to problem solve inside of these skills. And so it kind of gave me um, a little bit of motivation to help my students even at middle school because, you know, high school becomes so kind of um, funneled in what what job you want. So if, mm -hmm. if you're going to a certain profession and it's, it's a math and science profession, you need to focus on honors classes in math and science or AP classes in those. And so kids are having to make decisions way earlier than we had to when we were, <clears throat> excuse me, when we were graduating. And so they need to kind of be exposed to those types of things earlier, much earlier. And so giving students the ability to see that I have some computer skills that gives me a job options, many more job options, um, because you can't really look around and find a ton of jobs that don't also include technology today. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, from a lower paying job to a higher paying job, tablets are used, computers are used, cash registers are electronic. If you're, you know, even at the farmer's market, the people selling things at the farmer's market have their iPad with their cube and you can swipe your credit card. Yeah. And so it, it's, you know, some of the most natural basic areas that we go to do business, you still have to have some technology skills to be able to do those because we do live in such a digital world. And so it uh, it was just an event. It was something that we happened upon in, in looking at coding and computer science. Um, but I don't know if you know, but the president recently made a statement that they, he wanted computer science for all students. Um, and so I think it's a pretty cool event to know that you started out, you know, that we were part of an event that really is something that's super 
important for students. That's a 21st century skill that hopefully has led students to find jobs or careers or to go down a path that they maybe wouldn't have if they hadn't been exposed to the ability or the option to experience a little bit of coding in an, a fun, easy environment that wasn't, you know, uh, you have to pass or fail this. There, right. It was, you get to play these games, you get to write this code, you get to experience a really fun and exciting event. So, It, it is definitely something that is going to be, uh, is just going to grow in importance uh, as, as time goes on. Because you're right, every job and really even our social lives are going to be more and more centered around not just the digital environment, but to be able to actively participate in that the knowledge of, of how coding works and how scripting works is going to become a part of that. It will become something that all of us will have to embrace to some degree. Not all of us will be writing video games or making apps, but sort of understanding the basic tenets of it will be really important. Right. So. And knowing that you have students who are middle school age who are writing apps is a pretty exciting event, pretty good life skill to have. So. It is, definitely. <laughs> and, and, you know, as a patron of the district and as somebody that has had a daughter that's went to your classroom, thank you for being innovative in, oh, in seeking these out. <laughs> you know, we it, it, I, I think that um, people like you that are, are putting these experiences in front of our students is, is really necessary because, you know, we know from the innovation curve that it takes early adopters like you before it will become part of the mainstream. And I think you and I both agree that with the students that we have coming up, it will have to become part of the mainstream and, and increasingly we'll be looking at, at individuals like yourself that's been doing it for a few years to see how to, how to do it well in a broader sense. So thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Uh, and thank all of you for listening to Teaching Matters. It's produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen to Teaching Matters and other programs at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WUB Public Media, thank you for listening, and have a great day. April, thank you. Thanks for having me.